Today we're going to be covering the latest from the uh, Ukraine scenario, <clears throat> particularly with um, regard to the various different um, elements that have emerged over the last few days, particularly the report uh, in Germany that has come out from various uh, former German diplomats and military uh, military figure that doesn't tell us anything that uh, we didn't know already in terms of if you've been watching this channel for a while, um, you will have heard me talk about the various different attempts that US and uh, British imperialism and the entire imperialist bloc would have uh, made to uh, sabotage any potential peace process between uh, Russia and Ukraine. Now, what this report has done um, is um, confirm almost everything that uh, we've talked about here on the channel over the past year. And so we're going to be talking about that first of all. Then a look at the uh, vote in the British Parliament last night against, well, it was, an S, it was a Scottish National Party um, amendment to the King's speech, if you will. Um, and it was about um, the, the, trying to amend the British government's position to be in favour of a ceasefire. Um, so <clears throat> the vote was uh, 293 to 195 uh, against uh, amending the government's position. And we're going to be talking about why that was. And of course, the two things, uh, Ukraine and uh, Palestine, are intimately linked together. So going to be going into that as well. Now, first of all, let's talk about this uh, report that has come out in Germany or uh, the on the Brave New Europe website uh, from uh, an ex-German diplomat, uh, a former uh, Bundeswehr commander. And what they have done is compile everything that has been talked about basically for the last uh, year or so. Uh, with regard to the situation in Ukraine. <clears throat> and what I mean by that is that they have gone through all of the different elements that uh, led up to the uh, peace negotiations in March of 2022 and why those failed. Now, I find the uh, report very useful in the sense that it brings together an awful lot of uh, information that was previously uh, separate. So what they do is they put together a timeline 
uh, and go through uh, each instance of attempted peace negotiations. So the reports by Michael von der Schulenberg, uh, who's an ex-diplomat, uh, former UN Assistant Secretary General, Hayo Funke, who is a professor for political science at the Otto Sur Institute in Freie University, Berlin, and a, a former general in the Bundeswehr, Harald Kuyat. So this is a pretty bourgeois source that we're dealing with here. Perhaps they're a uh, minority within the German bourgeoisie. Certainly they seem to be. But when you read the report, um, it's everything that they say in there, it's not wild speculation. It's all documented. Uh, this is all documented fact that they have uh, reported on there in terms of each stage of the negotiation process. And what they go through is essentially, as I say, a confirmation of all the things that uh, we have been talking about here, which is that in the early stages of the uh, the Russian special military operation, Zelensky and uh, Rustam Umarov, who was back then his national security advisor, um, who's a rather laughable figure, who's now the Ukrainian Minister of Defense, were both keen on a negotiated settlement. In fact, according to the reports by uh, Kuyat and von der Schulenberg, the uh, Zelensky group remained keen on a uh, negotiated settlement until the visit of a certain Mr. Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson, another namesake that I'm not proud of. And if for those of you who aren't aware who that is, uh, Boris Johnson is just a stage name. Um, his actual name is Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson. And even I can't match that in terms of number of barrels to a name. Now, what was actually going on in that early stage was that Zelensky, having been elected um, supposedly uh, to end the war uh, back in 2019, this is what he was talking about. And of course, we are all familiar, or many of you will be familiar, with the footage of him being sent essentially face down and humiliated by some Azov guys. The Azov lot and the other Banderists uh, ran uh, various different officials who Zelensky brought in with him out of the government by intimidation tactics. So from the earliest stage, like whatever Zelensky's actual attitude was on this, um, you know, resolving the uh, the Donbass issue, and he made contradictory statements on it all the way along, whatever seriousness he had there was, of course, um, counteracted by the fact that the only serious armed forces inside Ukraine, that is the people who can mobilize an armed group um, outside of the military and indeed inside of the military are the fascists, the Banderists, whatever name you like to give them. And they, of course, were opposed to it. But then again, they were merely the uh, frontline troops, shall we say, of the US imperialists. They're the shock troops on the ground. So Zelensky's uh, initial drive for uh, a peace settlement was then contradicted by certainly those people and significant elements within the Ukrainian uh, ruling class. So again, we, when you try and pin down what the hell Zelensky's position was, it becomes more and more difficult because on the one hand, he's elected on a peace platform. On the other hand, at the Munich Security Conference at the end of 2021, he made a bizarre speech when he, was talk he kept talking about restoring Ukraine's nuclear weapons program, which of course 
again, to go back over this, Ukraine never had a nuclear weapons program. They never had um, any independent capability of firing the nuclear weapons systems that were left in Ukraine at the end of the, the Soviet period. They got rid of these in 1994 and returned them to the government of the Russian Federation. So they never had the capability of doing that. So why the hell was Zelensky going on about it? Well, Zelensky's behavior, I think we've seen during the war, uh, certainly over the last 18 months, has been erratic at best. Um, many put this down to his uh, extensive usage of a certain white powder that is available from disreputable gentlemen in the South American regions. But I think perhaps that's something to do with it. I think more to the point is that Zelensky um, is, well, let's face it, an actor. And I don't know how many actors that you, dear viewers, have met, but I've met quite a lot of them. And uh, a more shallow and um, short-sighted bunch of individuals it's hard to find. But more so than that, uh, more seriously, what Zelensky's contradictory positions represent is that within the power structure constructed after the Maidan coup of 2014, we see that there are a number of different blocks that are emerging and have various different um, stages they go through in terms of power. Now, before the Russian special military operation began, there was still a minority, I think, within Kiev that were, if not yeah, what you would say pro-Russian, certainly people who had interests in resolving the situation in the Donbass. Now, they're a minority, uh, but they were still there. And you then have, of course, others who are um, more on the other side of it, who are sort of fanatical about joining the EU and joining NATO, believing, for whatever reason, corrupt reasons sometimes, class interests, that this would uh, open a path towards greater riches for them and their class. And then you have others who sort of bounce back in between them. And then you have the absolute fanatics in the form of the Banderists who act as the, the strong-arm men of American imperialism. So what you have is Zelensky sat in the middle of all of these groups saying wildly contradictory things from one day to the other, that this is before, I'm talking before February of 2022, as he's pulled in different directions at different times. Now, in the early stages of uh, the Russian special military operation, when, if you recall, the Russians advanced very quickly with fairly minimal forces, their actual fighting forces on the ground, uh, numbered only around about 100,000 at most in that very early stage of the SMO. And with that, though, they managed to do very lightning fast advances into uh, into the south. Um, they pushed the Ukrainians uh, back significantly in Lugansk, and they raced into uh, Zaporozhye and Kherson region and made significant advances up around Kharkov and all the way down to Kiev. Now, this at the time uh, was interpreted incorrectly, as the report makes clear, by uh, the likes of um, Johnson in Britain and, well, Lloyd Austin, Tony Blinken and others inside the U US apparatus, along with the French and the Germans sort of tagging along behind them. And the whole um, 
prospect here of um, a negotiated peace rested upon um, Putin's tactics or the Russian government's tactics, shall we say. And as the report makes clear, the Russian government's initial tactics um, were based upon the idea of a negotiated settlement. Now, how can we confirm this to be the case? If you look at the number of forces that the Russians had available to them, in terms of not just the the actual fighting forces of the the armed forces of the Russian Federation, but also the uh, Donbass um, armed forces that have been formed over the previous eight years of fighting, the actual number of troops that they had in the field came to around about 120,000. That, that was the around about 90,000 uh, Russian regular army and around about uh, 30 odd thousand in the Lugansk and Donetsk uh, militias. Now, that, of course, as you you can find many military experts um, who will testify to this, that is not enough to conquer cities like Kiev, which um, consists of around about 3 million people, I believe, or did at the time anyway, since it has, of course, dramatically shrunk in terms of population. It's not enough to go all the way to the Polish border, certainly. 120,000 men stretched out across an area that is as large as Ukraine, which is, I believe, um, four times the size of the state of Texas. 120,000 men is not enough to cover that amount of territory, even if the Ukrainian population is quite low. You would be stretched to absolute breaking point. So the alignment of forces that the Russian government had organized prior to the beginning of the special military operation and in its earliest phases was all about hitting the Ukrainians hard and fast, making rapid territorial gains, pressuring the, um, the Zelensky government into agreeing to negotiations, which was the tactic. The tactic was all about getting those negotiations and getting Zelensky to give up on the NATO membership objective. And in terms of the early days of the SMO, this tactic was being pursued successfully. And let's just revisit as to why the Russians were pursuing this tactic. Contrary to all of the propaganda that you find about uh, the Russian government and Vladimir Putin, Putin as a, as a manager of a government, and I have repeatedly made the case that what he is, is a very effective um, committee chairman and manager of various different factional groupings that you can find within the Russian government. A good account of these can be found in uh, Professor Richard Sakwa's book, The Putin Paradox. I, I don't hold with Sakwa's liberal interpretations of these uh, things, but in terms of research, the man is almost unrivaled in terms of an English language scholar on Russian uh, political affairs post-1991. He's written many uh, books with a great deal of useful information, and, and The Putin Paradox being one of the more recent ones. And the reason I recommend that is particularly for the chapter where Sakwa goes through the various different factions that are within the Russian government, from the, the pro-US um, faction, which used to be a lot more strong um, than it is now, to the Eurasianists, to the, um, the Soviet uh, revivalists, to 
the bizarre collection of sort of um, monarchist types that float around, all of whom uh, have a presence within the hierarchy of the Russian state, and all of whom have to be taken seriously and um, brought to a consensus by Putin and Mishustin, the prime minister, and others, such as Dmitry Medvedev, who now, uh, of course, operates permanently as a uh, as a as a, a very efficient telegram operator who trolls the West on a, on an almost daily basis. But a consensus has to be pulled together from that group within that group, and Putin's skill as a politician is that he is able to get these disparate elements within the system to actually come together to fi find a consensus. That is his skill. And it's a skill not many politicians actually have, which is why I think the, the obsession with Putin uh, and the obsession with removing him uh, from the, um, the, the imperialists is important to understand because they... Of course, their portrayal of him is ludicrous to the Western publics. It's all propaganda. It's all garbage. I mean, if they're not telling us that he's on the stage of uh, conquering all of Europe, they're telling us he's actually been dead for two years or he's in an insane asylum or he has every different variety of cancer or dementia or everything else, all of which just seems to be a giant exercise in projection. But I think that the, the Western intelligence um, services probably do have a better understanding of the Russian system than they than their propaganda lets on. Their obsession with Putin and removing Putin and his system has always been about um, their assessment, and it's somewhat of a correct assessment from their point of view, their assessment that Putin is very important in that he is the man who has successfully pulled these disparate elements within the Russian system together, having constructed this form of bonapartism that exists in Russia, he is the central element to it in that he is the one, along with probably others as well, but he's the most successful and the most able manager of that system. And so the, the American imperialists' um, military and intelligence assessment has been that if Putin can be pushed out of that system, then that system will fall apart and collapse into chaos. Now, I think that what has happened since um, the SMO is that that has backfired spectacularly. And I think that the assessment itself isn't entirely wrong. And if they're, but I think it's slightly outdated. I think that the, the system now is probably, um, it, it, I wouldn't say that if Putin disappeared tomorrow, it wouldn't cause problems, but it's, strengthened itself over the years. I think if you'd have removed Putin in 2008, say, if Putin had disappeared then, if they'd been successful, for instance, in their Georgian gambit, um, all those years, 15 years ago uh, in the Caucasus, then he'd have gone then. Then there might have been a major crisis in Russia. But I think ever since then, what you've actually seen is the, the Putin system let's just uh, let's say, say it's a system that, in which he is central to, has strengthened itself. But the intelligence assessment is, and this is where we get to the, the motivations here, that if they could remove him somehow, then the, the, either the whole system would fall apart or that they could cut a deal with the pro-West, um, pro-US, more comprador faction that still existed 
within the Putin system up to March of 2022, personified by a man who is now um, who's now fled to Israel. I'm not sure if he's still there, Anatoly Chubais, who was given a non-job by Putin as climate change envoy. If you want to find out um, who's got a job which isn't matching matching the job description, i.e. somebody who's been given either a non-job or whose actual job is something different entirely, look for who the climate change envoys are. They're usually in charge of handing out corporate welfare, but often it's a non-job that's been given to somebody to essentially keep them in the tent. And that's the job that Anatoly Chubayas had until um, March of 2022 when he quit and fled to Israel. So the assessment that they were working off was that they would um, be able to uh, remove Putin via this war, which is why now we get to the reason why they blocked that uh, peace process that the uh, former Israeli prime minister, now uh, permanently on the uh, permanent media talking head, Naftali Bennett, um, Erdogan of Turkey, and a few others were involved in, including Gerhard Schroeder. Now, what the uh, Russian assessment was and what the Russian consensus was in that early parts of the war was seen to be a balance between the Eurasianists, i.e. those who favor a, a greater Eurasian integration, those who are influenced by the ideas of Dugin and his idea of um, Eurasianism, and the um, the pro-Soviet uh, wing of the government, who are apparently quite well represented in certain areas of the military and intelligence networks in the um, Russian Federation, those people were much more in favor of a more maximalist approach that would see um, the Maidan regime completely destroyed and the Russian army quickly go to Kiev and knock it out. And the pro-US, yeah, pro-European wing, which, of course, uh, was represented by those who have interests in oil and gas supply specifically, who were desperate to avoid getting kicked out of that market. Now, it should be emphasized, of course, they haven't been entirely kicked out of that market, but the supply has been restricted and they've had to redirect their supplies elsewhere. So... The compromise position between these different factions appears to have been what was decided upon in early 2022 by the Russian Federation, which is a limited military operation, which is why Putin called it a special military operation. He didn't intend, or the Russian government didn't intend, for this to last beyond a few weeks. The idea was shock Zelensky and the Kiev regime into agreeing to negotiations, get essentially the Georgian solution when it comes to uh, Donetsk and Lugansk, which is that they would remain part of Ukraine on paper, but in reality, they will be essentially independent states. Remember, Putin recognized the independence of Donetsk and Lugansk first before he went ahead and authorized the special military operation. So, Essentially, what would happen was uh, like um, Abkhazia and South Ossetia in what, what what used to be the territorial lands of Georgia. These would be independent in name uh, and, and, and in reality, they would be very closely integrated with the Russian Federation. There would be no Ukrainian armed forces there. Formally speaking, perhaps the uh, residents would 
carry the passports of uh, or the identification of the Ukrainian state, maybe, but given that they would be declared independent and recognized by Russia and Russia's allies, in reality, they would either carry uh, their own passports or probably the passports of the Russian Federation. But on paper, it would remain part of Ukraine. Crimea, though, would be gone forever, as apparently Zelensky was prepared to acknowledge. So what happens? And according to uh, the report uh, done by uh, von der Schulenberg and uh, Kuyat, the um, whole uh, question of this uh, takes a, sh a sharper turn uh, when the, the initial negotiations are successful. And initially, according to this report, and we, we have some confirmation of this from uh, comments that were made at the time, by former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, that uh, they expected the Russians to be in Kiev and overwhelm it within three days, uh, and that the war would be over in a matter of weeks. Now, this appears to have been a dramatic miscalculation as to the balance of forces that the Russians were using. And it seems that they, they had quite genuinely misinterpreted what the Russians were doing. Because you got Millie saying that it would be over in days. You had, if you recall, the early days of the special military operation. You will remember that the all the embassies in Kiev, uh, the Americans, the British, the Canadians, the French, the Germans, all up and quit. The apparently the head of German external intelligence was in Kiev when, if you remember, the Russians did a dramatic paratrooper landing at Gostomel Air Base in uh, just outside of Kiev. And the, the German um, intelligence men were caught almost literally with their pants down and had to uh, jump into a car and drive incredibly fast for the uh, Polish border because they didn't expect it to actually happen. Now, they all quit Kiev. They all ran from Kiev. In those early days, um, they, it, they appeared to believe that the Russians were going to go all in, take out Kiev, take out Zelensky, and that would be it. And so when the um, initial talk of negotiations popped up, um, the report claims that the even like the British and the French and the Germans were in favor of it because they were thinking that the Russians would be going all the way to Kiev within a few days. And now when, of course, it turned out that the objective of the Russian government was more limited than that, that it was more about securing a negotiation with Zelensky, not taking out Zelensky and destroying the government which he heads, at that point, things started to change. And it's here that we get into the realm of um, massive miscalculations by the imperialists. At each stage within this process, you will find that the imperialists make mistakes uh, with regard to the, their evaluation of the Russian government. Because the Russian government didn't ha um, line up enough forces to go all the way to Kiev and knock it over and destroy the government headed by Zelensky and implant somebody else, because they what they wanted to achieve was a negotiation, what the, um, what the imperialists then thought was that they had an opportunity. And this is what becomes clear when you go through the report. The uh, opportunity that they thought they had was that they had, and this is a direct quote, 
they, they had overestimated uh, what they call Putin's strength. They thought that by pursuing these limited objectives, that actually the Russian uh, government and the Russian army was much weaker than they imagined, that um, they couldn't knock over uh, the Kiev regime, that, that, that what they now had was an opportunity to actually pursue their objective of regime change in Russia itself, because clearly they thought that this um, display of weakness by the Russian government was something that they could now exploit. So what actually happens is that uh, the negotiation process begins in uh, first Belarus and then Istanbul. And they're close to an agreement on the terms of, uh, of what I've just been describing, which is essentially the Russians will withdraw from Zaporozhye and Kherson region. The uh, two republics of uh, Donetsk and Lugansk would become sort of semi-independent entities. Um, again, nominally in Ukraine, but in, for all practical purposes, these would be independent states. Crimea would be gone forever and the NATO um, application would be scrapped and Ukraine will be committed to permanent neutrality. And that's what the Russians were after. Now, this was interpreted as, uh, oh, this is weakness by the, um, the hardliners in Washington and in London and in Paris and Berlin. And so they all thought that, well, now's our chance to actually fully enact the regime change plans that have been cooking up inside the Western capitals for probably 20 years, probably longer. It's always one of the big misinterpretations that um, the um, the moronic left in the West always makes is that Putin was, uh, oh, he was the ally of the imperialists. Now, this isn't strictly true. Uh, it is true, of course, that the Russian government under Putin sought um, bargains repeatedly uh, with the U.S. imperialists, even after they knew very well that the U.S. imperialists and the British were fucking around in the South Caucasus and were backing up the um, the Chechen rebels there and uh, trying to make trouble in places like Dagestan as well. So Putin knows that very well. He's mentioned it on numerous occasions, but because, of course, he's the leader of capitalist Russia, he's seeking to secure uh, markets for Russian energy and boost the Russian budget accordingly. And so he wants to make a deal in those early stages. It would be wrong, though, to ever have described him as a stooge of imperialism, which some in the, um, in the Western left do, or an ally of imperialism. I think he tried in the very early stages to make Russia an ally of the United States. And more particularly, I think the plan was to make Russia an ally of Germany and therefore integrate Russia into the, um, the European space. Now, this, of course, takes us into um, the question of how much um, autonomy the European uh, states actually have, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. But it's clear that the the American imperialists and their British allies came to the conclusion that now was the time to strike. And we should, of course, recall that the entire purpose of this whole operation, going back to the days of the so-called Orange Revolution 20 years ago, is to overturn, uh, use Ukraine to create problems inside Russia and to therefore destroy not just uh, the Putin government, but the 
the system over which he has presided for almost a quarter of a century now. And that's been the plan all the way along, because fundamentally, uh, even with the, the Yeltsin Comprador clique running things in the 90s, the US and the British imperialists didn't feel like, like they had got enough out of Russia. They felt like there was a bit of a missed opportunity for them to further weaken uh, the Russian Federation during the Yeltsin period. And uh, we also need to factor into this that Yeltsin's effective power was pretty much done by uh, mid-1999. The reason why he went early was essentially, I would argue, the cumulative effect of the 1998 capitalist crisis in Russia, which I've talked about before in the episode you can find on YouTube entitled The 30-Year Crisis. The combined effect of that destroyed Yeltsin's authority. He'd been forced to accept a coalition government, including the KPRF, for a while at least, under uh, Primakov. Um, the Kosovo War was a major uh, blow to Yeltsin's uh, stature because he capitulated and sold out the Yugoslavs, sold out Milosevic to the imperialists. Uh, to the uh, consternation, particularly of the military and intelligence men, which, of course, causes the uh, the run of the Russian military to um, Pristina Airport in Kosovo to try and uh, secure it before the NATO forces arrived. And that was uh, part, one of the Russian deputy defense ministers, uh, Yevkurov, was one of the men who were in that um, group of Russian soldiers that did that um, very um, daring run to uh, Pristina Airport and ended up in a face-off with the British. Now, this the, the loss of confidence com completely in Yeltsin by the military and the intelligence command and his com the complete destruction of his economic policies uh, meant that essentially Yeltsin had no authority left after his capitu his final act of, of of treason was the selling of Yugoslavia to um, to the West uh, in 1999. After that, he was done. And with the the Putin era, you find, of course, slowly bit by bit that the um, the security apparatus of the Russian state is rebuilt. The territorial integrity of the Russian Federation is secured, and Putin, in his very cautious way, bit by bit, moves to uh, build things and or rebuild things inside the Russian Federation. And that already is too much for the imperialists. Putin was too much for the imperialists as early as 2001. Now, because they had other things on the boil at the time, they couldn't afford to give the Russian Federation all of their concentration. They had another plan in place, which, if it had come off, would have actually helped them to enact further plans against Russia, which was, of course, the plan in the Middle East. And if they had secured what they wanted there, which was the complete domination of the oil production, uh, which would have meant, basically, the total control over Iraq. Um, the original plan, of course, was to secure control over the oil reserves of Iran via the imposition of either a puppet regime or if the wilder ideas in Washington had come off some sort of invasion, though I will argue again that that was impossible for them even 20 years ago. But they clearly had an idea that they could secure at least a puppet regime in Tehran. Control Syria, of course, that was part of the original idea. 
Um, on the original list was, of course, Libya, which they did in 2011, Somalia for uh, strategic purposes and control of shipping lanes, and, of course, uh, Lebanon as well to destroy Hezbollah. So if they'd have secured what they were after there, and it was an ambitious plan, which was to essentially control most of North Africa, bear in mind they already had the Mubarak puppet state uh, of Egypt on their, in their column. They could have secured the oil um, supplies of Libya, the oil reserves of Libya, secured um, full control over Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. That was their idea. And therefore, you would control almost the entire um, oil reserves of the Middle East if that plan had come off. Bear in mind, 20 years ago, they had the very close alliance with the Saudi states as well. They still do to a degree, but it's drifted apart a little bit. So that's the idea. And if they'd have secured that, <clears throat> that would have been the overwhelming majority of like the Middle Eastern <clears throat> oil fields under their control. So that would have meant essentially that they would have been able to uh, press down upon the oil price in a way that would have been much more effective than the rather lame um, sanctions regime that they've been trying over the past year or so, which would have given them a great deal of leverage over the Russian Federation that they do not enjoy now. Of course, thanks to the uh, resistance efforts of the Iraqis and thanks to the fact that the Americans couldn't uh, ever pin down uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan and thanks to the fact that the Syrian government forces and Hezbollah resisted the destruction of the Syrian state, all of these plans in the end were reduced to ashes at great cost, it must be said, but it must also be emphasized that the in the resistance movements in Afghanistan, Iraq, and the resistance of the Syrian government ultimately did succeed in destroying American aggression there, or at least severely setting it back. So this plan, which again, if they'd have managed to dominate um, what is in effect West Asia, uh, from Libya all the way through to um, Iran, that would have been an enormous boost to um, the uh, strategic position of American imperialism, but also to underpin the profitability of American imperialism, a gigantic orgy of looting going all the way across North Africa and all the way through uh, West Asia. It would have uh, perhaps, if successful, would have given uh, the American imperialists what they were after, which was the full spectrum dominance that they wanted. Because, of course, if you manage to securely control Afghanistan that, and, of course, Pakistan as well, you have the ability to project an enormous amount of power into Central Asia and create unlimited trouble for the Russian Federation. Bear in mind that a big push of the 2000s in particular was that the US and the British imperialists also wanted to expand their interests in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan particularly those two areas, which are, of course, oil and gas suppliers. And you already have the long-term alliance between British imperialism and the Aliyev crime family in Baku. So this is the a clear and coherent plan was there that, if successful, would have enabled them to essentially create almost limitless problems for the Russian Federation in terms of ability to uh, control the oil price and ability to create multiple security issues for the Russian Federation via the Central Asian states 
uh, including uh, by, by, by making trouble there with regard to various separatists and Islamic fundamentalists uh, infiltrating into Russia itself, and also by trying to push the Russian Federation out of the ties that it has with Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and redirect those countries towards being solely in the camp of US imperialism. The ultimate plan, of course, being in the end, if 20 years ago they'd been successful in caging and making so much trouble for the Russian Federation that, it, that the Putin system collapsed early on and they were able to bring back in a more amenable Yeltsin figure or just break the country up entirely, then, of course, that would make the dealing with China much more easy. Because if you can uh, then either keep Russia weak and pinned down, there, and then and also you can secure more military assets in the Central Asian region. If you look at a map, you can progressively advance the stranglehold on China so that ultimately whatever operation, uh, regime change operation that you try to operate in China is operating from a much stronger basis of complete dominance of West Asia and the uh, destruction of the territorial integrity of the Russian Federation. Those were the ideas 20 years ago. And I'm mentioning all of those to give you an indication of why they thought that they, what they needed to do. And Tony Blair is on record as having said this in declassified British documents. What you need to do is, in this period, fob the Russians off. Talk of endlessly about friendship, which is, of course, why in 2008, there was a final plan presented by uh, Medvedev, in, in, factual, in actual fact, for a comprehensive uh, arrangement between the Russian Federation and NATO, which was, of course, rejected. So the, the Blair idea, uh, classic Blair idea, is talk endlessly about friendship, string them along, and then if our plans work out in West Asia, when we're able to completely dominate the area, then it doesn't matter uh, uh, that essentially we've fobbed off the Russians because we're now in a position to exert such a great amount of pressure on them that essentially we can weaken them continually. And all it's cost us is having to indulge this uh, dreadful man Putin for a few years. And that was the plan 20 years ago. And it's why, of course, in those early years, prior to about 2005, 2006, they um, were prepared to shake hands, smile and make nice. And of course, encourage a lot of Russian oligarchs to take their money out of the Russian Federation and dump it into real estate in New York and London and Paris. This all changes in uh, around about 2005, 2006. In around about that time, it, uh, the change towards the Russian Federation starts to become obvious in the British bourgeois press. And I remember this particularly because this is the time when I was a political science undergraduate and I was actually, it was part of my course, I had to do international relations modules. And you have to study the international relations journals and, of course, the reporting of what I now realize are like these ruling class bourgeois rags, which are like The Economist and uh, The Telegraph and uh, Foreign Affairs magazine, uh, various, and of course, the, the, the various different sort of ultra reactionary American magazines like uh, the Weekly Standard and things like that. And so what you start to see in about, I think probably from later uh, 2004, then into 2005 and 2006, is as the Iraq war goes increasingly bad for US imperialism, as the level of resistance goes up, 
And as the security situation for their forces there gets worse, and as the political situation for the Bush administration gets worse, you start to see the that that period of around about four years where they smiled and made nice with the Putin administration, that all goes. From about 04 to 05, you start to see a lot more critical reporting of the Russian war in Chechnya, uh, which was uh, now being described as, oh, it's brutal, it's horrible, it's horrific, you know. And the the reporting on Putin as this sort of shadowy puppet master is uh, increasing all the way through uh, 2004, 2005. And in 2006, we get the in, in London, the bizarre death of the former KGB man, Alexander Litvinenko, if any of you remember him. Um, reportedly, and now this looks very dubious, uh, poisoned by um, somebody called um, Andrei Lugovoy, uh, putting polonium in his tea, which I think is an utterly bizarre way of killing anybody. And the strange death of Litvinenko, which I've only looked into briefly, is important because it marks a turning point in the way that the British bourgeois press talk about the Russian Federation. And it's at that point that you start to see more and more relentlessly hostile uh, reporting on the figure of Putin. Because by 2006, what's happened? The plans in the Middle East have all gone wrong. Um, they're not able to uh, pin down Afghanistan. The Taliban are back and running a, a very long-term uh, insurgency that ultimately wins. The resistance in Iraq does not calm down. Their plans to roll into Syria and roll immediately uh, or try to stage some kind of regime change operation in Iran haven't come together. Their plan to aggressively go after other areas in the Middle East haven't gone together either. And toward in the middle of 2006, what do you get? You get a US-sponsored Israeli attempt to take out Hezbollah going wrong uh, and them having to scuttle back to uh, occupied Palestine in a humiliated fashion. So all of this means that the plan for full-spectrum dominance has been blown up. Um, it's gone wrong. It's not working. And for that reason, they need to recalculate. Recal and so what do you see then? Well, I mean, they'd engaged in the, um, the regime change operation in Ukraine in 03 to 04 through the Orange Revolution. But by then, it was obvious that Yushchenko had been a bad bet. He wasn't doing what they wanted to do. Um, yes, he was bringing back banderism and he was indulging in all kinds of like fascist revivalism. But the what they needed from him, he hadn't delivered upon him. Not enough, anyway. And, of course, he was fading in popularity and was ultimately going to lose the next presidential election. So they need to recalculate. What do they do? They bring in, again, this is back in 03, 04, uh, you get the, uh, the so-called Rose Revolution in, of course, Georgia. And who do they bring in? The unstable maniac, Mikhail Saakashvili. And the, 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 the war in uh, South Ossetia, uh, in uh, later 08, was a product of the uh, slow change in policy, or not so slow change in policy in actual fact, in the imperialist uh, bloc, which is particularly in the United States and in Britain, they thought, well, 
Middle East is essentially not going quite the way we wanted it to go. So we need to now essentially recalibrate, recalculate. And one of the ways we do that is, of course, we continue the plan that's been moving forward relentlessly anyway, which is using NATO expansion to destabilize the Russian Federation. Georgia is the dry run, effectively, for what will be done in Ukraine. And then that goes wrong because, of course, um, Saakashvili took them to literally when he thought that they would ride to his rescue. They were never going to, of course. Uh, what he was supposed to do was create continual problems in South Ossetia, but not go for the all-out war that he ended up launching. And that, of course, goes wrong, and ultimately uh, South Ossetia is lost along with Abkhazia. But that was a very much a sort of pivot point. That's the, the point where the policy starts to flow in a different direction, and the urgency and the hysteria around the figure of Putin becomes ever more intense after 2008, because, of course, what happens in 2008, it's the gigantic financial crisis in, in the US and in Britain. So not only by 2008 have their dreams in uh, West Asia gone wrong, but and of course their dream of pushing Russia out of Central Asia has also gone wrong because they can't even control Afghanistan properly. The gigantic recession uh, makes the point ever more urgent that they have to try somehow to uh, secure the collapse of um, the Putin system inside Russia in order to actually be able to unrestrictedly uh, loot it to the point of destruction and, of course, put themselves in an advantageous position vis-a-vis -vis China. Now, all of this is uh, very relevant because what we're talking about here, when we have to bring it back up to date again with the, the war in Ukraine, is that the, the urgency of the situation facing the imperialist bloc is very important to understand because all of their plans 20 years ago went wrong. That's why, and this is the point I want to get across, their hostility towards Putin becomes ever more frenzied as their plans go wrong and their uh, system lurches into a greater and greater crisis. You get to the point where they are uh, needing urgently the removal of the Putin system and the unrestricted ability to loot everything inside the Russian Federation. And this is something which unites, of course, the United States itself, but it, of course, uh, brings along with it the, uh, the British imperialists. But it also applies to <clears throat> the French and the Germans. Now, recently, Schultz, um, this sort of clownish figure, uh, came out and said that, well, we need to buy uh, energy off the Russians, but uh, the best way to do that is to be able to remove Putin, and then we can buy energy off the Russians again. This was the big idea. And so um, if you go back and look at the report, you can see that the French and the Germans are as on board with the plans for uh, waging this via Ukraine, of course, uh, this war against the Russians. And looking at this in terms of an opportunity to secure regime change inside the Russian Federation. Now, the, the talk before uh, early 2022 was that the French and the Germans weren't as keen, but it turns out that they were. They were, uh, under Macron and Schultz, just as keen on regime change because they needed it too. Their systems are in crisis as well. 
There's some uh, people claim that yeah, Schultz was the only one who put the German system in crisis. No, German capitalism has been running into trouble uh, since the days of Gerhard Schroeder. Yes, the growth rates used to be higher, but after devouring the system um, of the old East Germany, the growth rates in German capitalism never quite matched what the uh, the early earlier days of the, the uh, Federal Republic of Germany, West Germany, managed to find. And German um, capitalism has been, of course, relentlessly withdrawing the concessions that were made to the old West German working class system um, prior to reunification. And if you and I'm hoping to uh, get German comrades on the program soon to talk about this. And if you look at it, a relentless class war and a downward pressure on the living standards of the German working class has existed now for over 15 years, possibly longer. And of course, you've had deindustrialization in Germany going on for over 20 years, with more and more um, component parts of German uh, manufactured goods being made, uh, not just in China, but elsewhere in Southeast Asia. So German um, capitalism... Uh, was in trouble prior to uh, the beginning of the special military operation. Merkel had actually overseen over a decade of stagnation and decline. And you have also on top of that, the Eurozone debt crisis, which Germany and France are very heavily exposed to. And of course, you have um, the, the EU project, which was proceeding apace, but creating greater and greater crises. So if you put all this together, you know, the uh, parlous state of American imperialism's domestic economy, which had been um, in crisis and it was only was trying to sustain itself by essentially uh, create, printing ever greater amounts of money inside the United States itself and trying to secure um, new profit centers for itself by being able to unrestrictedly loot areas that have been destroyed, which is why, of course, they went into Libya. It's why they were so desperate to get the Syrian job done, so to speak, and why they saw the, uh, the events in early 2022 in Ukraine as such a huge opportunity. And that, of course, uh, this wishful thinking has provoked a catastrophic miscalculation. They thought that the Russian Federation was uh, much weaker than they uh, initially uh, calculated that it was. They thought they had a real opportunity to secure a military victory. Um, and of course, the cherished regime change project could go ahead. And they all needed this to go ahead. America, Britain, France, Germany, all of the most significant states within the imperialist bloc all needed this project to work. And this is, of course, why they go ahead with this uh, mad idea. And they were going to arm Ukraine to the teeth and that they will be able to secure a victory against the Russian Federation. Because, again, they had made a fundamental miscalculation, um, as they have done every single time. They all think, of course, quite, perhaps quite genuinely, that Putin is this mad aggressor. Uh, if you read the... Um, the like the autobiography of like self-serving assholes like Obama, they they do think I, I, I this is this is quite a genuine impulse on their behalf. They do see Putin as this relentless aggressor. Why? Because he's a barrier. He and the system that has built up around him in the Russian state are barriers to the unrestricted exploitation of Russian natural resources and to the bourgeois. That is a terrible affront because of course this class. Um, the imperialist class, 
um, in the in the West cannot abide by any restriction on their ability to actually uh, unre unrestrictedly devour natural resources and labor and markets that um, the the Putin system was uh, denying them, not denying them access to, because of course, as many will point out, Western oil companies did have um, significant, though not controlling stakes inside uh, Russian oil and gas fields. But that they weren't allowed to go in there and loot without restrictions. That was the problem for them. And therefore, Putin was this dreadful um, remnant of either um, communism or Tsardom or both and needed to be removed simply because, as he said in his Munich um, security conference speech of 2007, that Russia is open to investment. But essentially, if you invest in Russia, you have to abide by certain rules. And of course, they couldn't abide that at all. To them, Russia was a defeated nation that needed to be essentially reduced to the status of a neo-colony. And the Putin system successfully uh, managed to cancel that out, uh, the progress that they'd made in doing that under Yeltsin, and restore Russian national independence and sovereignty. And that is, of course, why they are so desperate to remove that system. So the point I want to get across here is that all of the major European powers were exactly lined up on uh, behind this idea as expressed to Zelensky by Boris Johnson that we are not prepared to see the war end. And that's a quote that's been confirmed from even Kiev regime media has said that Johnson turned up and said, you might want to see the war end. We don't. And that's why the security guarantees for a neutral Ukraine that um, Zelensky was asking for, uh, Johnson said, yeah, you're not getting those. You either fight this war or the implication was we won't give you anything. And not only that, the assets that are under the control of the United States and the British, i.e. the Banderists, will make trouble for you, Zelensky. So Let's be clear about what this is. This is essentially a mafia-type operation where the representative of the mafia, Boris Johnson, comes in, puts his arm around Zelensky and says, look, Vladimir, um, you might want to make peace. We don't. We see an opportunity to essentially uh, pursue a regime change project in Russia. You are the chosen vessel for this because we're not going to risk our own forces. So we will arm you. And trust us, Putin is weak. Putin is weak. And again, they misunderstood the Russian objectives and the Russian strength here because it was their calculations were overwhelmed by wishful thinking and desperation. Because let's think about early 2022. Uh, remember COVID? <laughs> remember all the other problems that the system had and still does have? That They'd gone through uh, 14 years since the um, the Great Recession, and they hadn't managed to solve any fundamental problem facing them. And so the big um, ob objective was regime change at all costs. And now we're going to use Ukraine as the battering ram. Now is our opportunity. And so they misinterpreted every single move that the Russians made because they were desperate to see it as a sign of weakness. And they were desperate to secure this uh, regime change project. And if the peace treaty that um, Zelensky was willing to sign up to had gone ahead, then that would have received a setback. Now, here we must visit the question of, was it ever going to be the case that this peace treaty would have stuck? Uh, would it have secured long-lasting long, long lasting 
peace in Ukraine? In my opinion, no. Um, it may have stopped the war as it stood, but there was absolutely no way that the imperialists would have stopped their activities inside Ukraine. There was no way they were ever going to give those up. The project had gone too far. There had been too much invested. The prize, i.e. regime change in Moscow, was too big for them to give up. And so if this had been somehow signed, if Zelensky had gone ahead and signed it, what would be the likelihood of this succeeding? The likelihood and the most likely outcome would have been that they would have done to Zelensky what they'd previously done to um, Yanukovych, which was that they would have done a Maidan on him. They would have uh, wheeled out a lot of the same organizations, the, uh, the liberal types in Ukraine who were desperate to join the EU. They would have dangled EU membership. Um, remember, this is the French and the Germans were all on board for this. Uh, so they would have dangled EU membership in return for taking more aggressive actions against Russian influence. They would have um, done everything they possibly could to destabilize Zelensky, maybe bringing back someone like Poroshenko or finding somebody else. Um, maybe Aristovich, who knows, um, who would have come in and acted as the great liberator of Ukraine, who is going to take back the Donbass. So there will be some who argue that this peace treaty would have meant the a comprehensive settlement for Ukraine and the end to the machinations there. In my opinion, that is not correct. The crisis of imperialism dictates that they needed to continue this project in Ukraine. And remember, Ukraine's army grew at the same rate as the uh, Western armies. Uh, the British and the uh, the French and the German armies actually declined in power and in numbers over the years. The Ukraine was essentially being turned into a giant outsourced military for the Europeans in particular, but also the United States as their own military declined in terms of numbers and, uh, and power projection getting an outsourced military encampment on Russia's border is a prize that could not be given up upon. So even if Zelensky had signed this, and even if uh, this had stuck, the project in Ukraine would have continued because the, the interests of imperialism dictate that it has to continue. It, they had to continue looking for regime change in Russia. They had to continue that project because their interests dictated it. They were facing setbacks everywhere else in the world. They needed something dramatic to restore profitability to the uh, the Western system. And the destruction of the Russian state and the looting opportunities that it provided was their way forward. They were still trying, of course, uh, through their propaganda and regime change campaigns in China, uh, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, other things as well. But this was not going particularly well. Russia was regarded and still is regarded to a certain extent as the easier nut to crack here and therefore was going to be the first option. So this uh, potential peace settlement, it may have stopped uh, the current version of the war. And therefore, you can say with some legitimacy that it would have uh, saved the lives of up to, what, 500,000 at least Ukrainians who have died. Uh, if you believe the casualty estimates coming from uh, the Russian side, and the or as it's between three to five hundred thousand, an enormous amount of people dead, many more fled, many more wounded. So on that point of um, analysis, you could say that at least it would have prevented that. However, the fate of Ukraine um, was still 
in the hands of the imperialists to a large extent. They were the ones who controlled all the political networks there. They are the ones who, of course, controlled large elements of the armed forces and the intelligence networks. They could have still made an enormous amount of trouble there to the point where they secured another Maidan and the removal of Zelensky and the imposition of somebody else. Then the whole thing began again. The point is that given the stage we are at in terms of the crisis of the imperialist system, there is absolutely no way that they were ever going to give this project up. And this um, doesn't make this report any less important, of course, because it sets out in plain language and on a very easy to understand timeline, all of the efforts that the US and the British and the French and the Germans made to make sure that any attempt at peace negotiations uh, ran into the ground and didn't succeed. The project for the destruction of the Russian Federation is too important to all of these powers to uh, let go of. That is the point to bear in mind here. And now pause for questions. Uh, right. So, hello to CJ, um, who says... Looking for ways to connect these issues, Russia and Palestine, theoretically in my activism, I have hesitated because Palestine seems to be the priority. I don't want to alienate people from it. Come back to that in a moment. HM, hello to you. From Brighton. Paddy, good morning to you over in Ireland. Uh, good hello to uh, William out in New Zealand. Uh, apparently the stream is glitchy. I'm not sure uh, if that's the case for anybody else. Let me know if it is. <clears throat> Uh, so, hello to Ralph over in Socialist China, who's loving the show. Glad to hear it. Yu Wan, who says, greetings from Jordan. Greetings back to you, comrade. Irish Partisan, who uh, who says he's on a workbench munching on a word that I don't understand in uh, Russian. Um, Abra K, hello from London. Uh, Brian, uh, good morning to you out in Japan. Oh, I think it's good evening there now, isn't it? Uh, Jerry uh, says, good morning from Hampshire. Lord Charfield, good morning to you. Good morning to Jay out there in Virginia. And Philbin, who says, recent gathering of imperial collaborators in D.C., sizable Zionist rally got a lot of coverage. Incidentally, also a smaller rally of farcical free Tibetan banderites could have won com Comprador Bingo. Yeah, the uh, the the rally in uh, of pro-Zionists in um, Washington... I'd be curious to know what uh, comrades think in terms of the um, the composition of that. How many of them were like uh, fundamentalist Christians? Because, of course, Pastor John Hagee was on there, who's basically, um, well, I think there's no other way to describe that man as um, other than a fascist and, a, and an authentic American fascist. So be interesting to know how many of his flock were there, who are, of course, who is, of course, Hagee, a rabid anti-Semite. And so it makes absolute sense that he would be at a Zionist rally. Uh, Muzzle Painter says, morning in solidarity, comrades from Maryland. Nothing better than solid political commentary to start your day. Well, it's going to be a morning show from now on. Paul says, good evening, comrades from one of the most reliable puppet states to US imperialism. It feels more upside down today as Alex's stream is coming late evening rather than mid-morning. Uh, Peter says, imploding U.S. imperialism seem, uh, views national self-protection as aggression and national liberation struggles as terrorism. The, wa the whoppers are starting to lose their impact. Uh, expects a lot more censorship. Yes, exactly. And fantastically and fascistically punitive criminal laws. Yes, adds Peter. 
Uh, Makumi says, this is better timing for us Eastern folks. Well, glad to hear it. Uh, HM asks, why did Russia try for a peace deal if it wouldn't have stopped the imperialist project in Ukraine? Good question. I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, stream time is apparently perfect for Banana Bender down under. And D says, do you think the money printing trick is coming to an end? What happens if the US government cannot sell bonds anymore? World War Free? Well, we'll come to that in just a moment. And D is coming to us from Germany. So let's go through the questions one by one and start with uh, CJ, uh, who uh, wants to see how the connection between the Russia and Palestine situations can be drawn. Now, this is an important question to consider. Now, first of all, um, if you haven't watched uh, Max Blumenthal's presentation, I believe it was to the Ron Paul Institute recently, you can find it on the Grey Zone YouTube page, where he describes how they're essentially turning Ukraine into a big Israel. And that was Zelensky's comment. Now, what do we mean by this? Now, to this, uh, we have to go to uh, right back to first principles again, which is, what is the purpose of Israel? What was the purpose of setting up a Zionist uh, colonial project in Palestine? Purpose from British imperialism, and this is retained by US imperialism, is that this entity, this enterprise, enables you to do power projection in the region. That's one thing. You create an armed military encampment there that serves as a proxy force for you. That's another, um, that, that's another factor to consider. And, you know, to go back to the words of Ronald Storrs about Israel, to create a little loyal Jewish Ulster in a sea of hostile Arabism, direct quote. So, again, consider also Ulster, the occupied six counties of Ireland. What is the purpose of that? Excuse me, I'm going to sneeze. <coughs> right. That's what you get for doing snuff in the morning. Um, the the purpose of Ulster, of course, originally, and perhaps still to this day, was to ensure that the the, the development of what was <clears throat> once called the Irish Free State was always going to be distorted. By keeping a literal gun to the head of the Irish state that emerged after the Irish War of Independence, and this gun, of course, is in the form of direct British military occupation, of the six counties that are called Ulster, you <clears throat> uh, are always able to convey a threat to the Dublin government, even if that government uh, were to consist of Irish nationalists or even socialist elements somehow in the future, you would always have the option presented by the, the large-scale British military presence in uh, the occupied six counties that there would be the threat of a military intervention if the Irish government pursued to an independent to independent a line. So that is, of course, one purpose of an Ulster type situation. <clears throat> the other uh, purpose, of course, is that the um, the to use the to use the occupied six counties as our example here. The other purpose of this is that the presence of the uh, the divided the deliberately divided communities in Ulster between loyalist and republican or if you want to use religious shorthand which is how it was always presented to us in the british bourgeois press protestant and catholic though of course those divided lines are often false and a very inaccurate way of reading the conflict you create a statelet that is based upon the systematic repression and the denial of rights to 
the minority, though, in the case of the the uh, Catholic population of the North in Ireland, it was always not a small minority, but a sizable minority, now perhaps even going towards being the majority. But by gerrymandering and systematically denying them political rights, often persecuting them out of employment, shutting them out of various industries, what you do is you create a situation of permanent suppression and, of course, permanent conflict. And you use that situation, uh, this um, sectarian statelet in the north of Ireland, with all with the suppression of the of, uh, of nearly half the population by imperialism, by its proxy force, which is of course the um, the loyalist element and the loyalist establishment over there, you create a situation whereby you have a permanent source of instability inside the island of Ireland, and that is crucial to understand the tactics here of British imperialism by creating this source of permanent instability, by creating a situation whereby the uh, the minority population is permanently persecuted, you also, of course, inflame the anger of the population of the South. We're talking about the immediate post-independence period here. And so you manage to, by creating that statelet, you manage to create a situation where the situation in the South is unstable, where there's a lot of people who are very angry about the settlement and the partition of Ireland. And by keeping the population there suppressed and subject to uh, persecution based on religion, based on you know, the denial of the Irish language, based on also politic relentless political persecution, uh, as I, all, and all the things I've just outlined, you create a situation where you have a state that is in the form of the Irish Free State slash Irish Republic, where it's permanently weak, where you already control its economy. So uh, therefore, that's why, of course, Ireland sees deindustrialization after independence, because the only thing the imperialists will pay them to do is, of course, be an agricultural uh, supplier to 100 years ago to the British mainland. And so with this combination of political and military pressure you create by having that um, occupied north, the destabilizing effect that the uh, that regime has both um, both on the population and on the uh, Irish government, and the ability to hold a gun to the head of an Irish government, both literally uh, through military force and figuratively through economic pressure, you create a situation where you may have given up the uh, the ind independence to the south, but by the state the control of that. Um, colonial outpost in the north and your your economic pressure, you're able to effectively control the development of the supposedly independent republic of Ireland, even up to the current present day. Of course, though, Ireland, the Irish capitalist class now is more, um, you know, controlled by American and European capitalism to a degree, but with British imperialism still occupying and controlling a significant amount of what goes on inside the Irish South. I go into those details because that's what's necessary for us to understand Israel. And because they that the Storrs' line is not an accident, because all the effects that the occupied North has on the development, the distortion of the development of 
the Irish Free State slash Irish Republic, all of those lessons are learned by the British and by the American imperialists when it comes to Palestine. All, now, bear in mind all of the negative impacts I've just outlined with regard to a newly independent state with an element of it carved out and given over to a hostile force aligned with imperialism, where the population uh, there, the in this, in this case, the Arab population is deliberately suppressed and abused and denied even basic bourgeois democratic rights. This is the situation that emerges through one thing, through a series of events after 1947 and particularly after 1967. But in that early period when the British were forced to withdraw from various different areas and set up nominally independent states in Egypt and Iraq and Jordan, and the French were forced to withdraw from Lebanon and Syria, you have a situation where they need to exercise control. And so they pursue the same tactics as they pursued in of course, Ireland. They tried to pursue these in India. That's what the uh, partition of India is all about. But the the idea is always create a conflict and thereby, therefore by creating an on-running conflict where the idea is that the imperialists then insert themselves in the middle of that and proclaim themselves to be either the guarantors of peace or at least to be in charge of some nominal peace process. That's what you know, as we've said before, the Oslo Accords are all about, and that's why the idea that the Americans are part of some peace process is a joke. What they are doing is pursuing the same tactics that British imperialism pursues everywhere, especially, of course, in our example of Ireland and the occupied six counties. Create a situation where you and your colonial project are suppressing and denying the rights of the uh, the, the native population, uh, create a regime that is so offensive and so horrific and so destabilizing in its impact that, of course, it then dist helps distort the development of all the states around it, which you've nominally given up control over. But through turning this state into an armed encampment, you can then keep a gun to the head of all the states around it. And, of course, if things start to go wrong, then you insert yourself as the imperialist force as supposedly a guarantor of peace, as a peacekeeping force, all of the guff you hear from them. So this is the purpose of, first, the occupied six counties of Ireland. This is the purpose of the state of Israel and the Zionist colonial project. This is why the British get on board with it. And they're quite open about that in the early period. So let's flip this to Ukraine. Why is Ukraine a big Israel? It's because Ukraine is being used in exactly the same way. The conflict and the war on the Russian-speaking areas is no accident. It is not just a byproduct of what was done in 2004 and then again in 2014 with the creation of the Maidan regime. Bear in mind also, this is the similar similar tactics would that were tried to, to be used in the Caucasus. It didn't really work out there due to the fact the Russians won the war and were able to suppress it. But what you do you what do you have in Ukraine that makes it such an appealing target for this tactic? It, it's the precisely the presence of the Russian-speaking minority and um or in fact, the Russian-speaking Russian element in Ukraine is actually the majority because almost all of them spoke Russian um, and still do. Um, if you look at the videos coming out of Ukrainians 
who are often arguing with each other. Um, you've in, in even in the Ukrainian Rada, for instance, where you see videos come out where Ukrainian deputies are arguing with each other, they'll start arguing in Ukrainian, but when they get angry, they just flip to Russian because they don't have the words to be able to express themselves in Ukrainian. So you, what you have there is a the elevation into power after 2014 of what is essentially uh, a minority in Ukraine, which was always a minority in Ukraine, which is, of course, the Banderists, and more specifically, the Western Ukrainian overtly fascist elements um, come to power, of course, headed by people like Poroshenko and various others who were all, of course, born in the Soviet Union, all, of course, speak Russian as their first language, but who are, of course, members of various bourgeois cliques who are more than prepared to be of service to imperialism due to the degenerate nature of the Ukrainian ruling class. The idea is that you build this statelet around, again, this is it's very similar to Zionism, completely false constructions. There's no historical basis for this form of uh, banderism other than it being a creation of various different imperialist projects be it uh, the originally austro-hungarian or in the later period uh, germanic german imperialism sponsored uh semyon petlura um, over a hundred years ago the vile um reactionary regime that organized some of the biggest pogroms of the ukrainian jewish population um, was sponsored by German imperialism in the period immediately after the Bolshevik Revolution and World War I. Um, the, even the symbolism of Ukrainian fascism all comes from uh, being directly imported from German fascism. And all of these guys were sponsored by German imperialism all the way through the 30s, as was our old friend Trotsky, by the way. But the point about it is that this was always a false creation. It is not organic. It is something which was imported by successive imperialist states and then picked up by U.S. and British imperialism and fostered uh, deliberately inside, of course, Canada, which brings us back to our old friend Yaroslav Hunker. Why is he in Canada? Because there was thousands of them taken there to create networks that would be then be used to exercise influence inside Ukraine, carry out covert operations, etc., and after the collapse of the Soviet Union, to import back into Ukraine wholesale point about this is 2014 is about putting in place a regime which is going to create conflict in the east it is its whole purpose from the point of view of imperialism is creating the situation in uh, the east of ukraine that will enable them to ultimately create a problem for the russian government so the the war that emerged in 2014, ideally for the imperialists, they would have wanted the um, Ukrainians to wrap that up quicker than they were able to. The ideal scenario for them would have been to control Donbass, but also to have the fascists in Kiev commit a, to create a regime of such brutal uh, and punitive nature that it resembled the regime that the Israeli occupiers have built inside um, the West Bank, for instance. And so if you look at what the, um, the Israeli forces do on the West Bank, so you have like checkpoints which um, stop Palestinians going onto one side of the road. 
you have uh, checkpoints in like tiny alleyways in like uh, Jerusalem, which control which bits Palestinians can walk down and which bits they can't. You have, of course, pogroms repeatedly and land seizures and all of those things. All of that was going to be, in fact, to a certain extent had already been transported over to um, East, what was Eastern Ukraine. They, what they would have done is you know, try to stamp out or Ukrainize the Russian population. And if they couldn't do that, then you would have probably seen the emergence of like almost an apartheid type system in Donbass, trying to weed out a systematically harass and humiliate the Russian population. The purposes of doing that, of course, are to create conflict, to create a situation whereby you got increased political tensions inside the Russian Federation itself, because they would be able to see what is happening to their people who they consider and who consider themselves to be far more Russian than they ever were Ukrainian. And you will be able to use, <clears throat> as the imperialists intended to, that situation to create a problem inside the Russian Federation itself. And that was the idea. And of course, if you managed to get your hands on Crimea, then you could more easily control the Black Sea area because, of course, you then have the ability to station NATO naval assets inside um, what had previously been the Russian bases in Crimea. So all of that taken together is the purpose of the Ukraine project. It's directly inspired by Israel, which was directly inspired by Ulster. And all of this connects together because this is the tactics that the U.S. imperialists are taking their, their cue from Britain always pursue to create these situations, to draw upon or, or dwell uh, or, or to, to jam a metaphorical crowbar into the fissures of any society to elevate a minority within a particular country to put them in power and have them institute a vicious regime of brutal reaction upon um, either the majority or a part of the majority to divide and subdivide again the opposition to yourself, to create ethnic tensions, to divide any potential opposition, and to ultimately to create problems um, inside the Russian Federation to destabilize it and to, of course, fund every group under the sun they could possibly find in Russia to uh, capitalize upon the problems they were creating in Ukraine. This is the way to draw this picture for people. The regime in Israel is a pure creation of British and American imperialism. What it did, of course, draws from other areas, most specifically the occupied six counties of Ireland, and to a large degree, the apartheid regime in South Africa. And then, of course, the project in Ukraine takes directly from the Israeli source in particular with regard to the regime that they wanted to create to relentlessly persecute Russian speakers and ethnic Russians. That's what they wanted to do. And that's why when Zelensky calls Ukraine a big Israel, that's what, well, I don't know whether he knows that's what he's talking about, but that's what his handlers mean. The purpose of Israel in the Middle East becomes the purpose of Ukraine in Eastern Europe slash Western Russia. And that is the way to draw the connections here. It's all part of the same imperialist tactics that have been used again and again and again. 
And if we go back to, again, explaining why the imperialists are so desperate to have this project come off, it is because of the depth of the crisis of the system. They need the Russian state destroyed. They need its ability to um, exert in basic sovereignty and independence removed. They need unrestricted access to all of its natural resources. And if they can't get it through the imposition of a sort of Yeltsin part two, they will get it via the breakup of the country. That's the plan. And it all comes from the long-term crisis of imperialism. Now, many people may resist that, but we have to explain it to them that the tactics pursued in Ukraine are, the sim are very similar to the tactics pursued in Israel, very similar to the historic tactics of British imperialism, and all coming from the same, of course, root cause. So I'll pause now for further questions. Right, where are we now? So, uh, we got HM who says, why did Russia try for a peace deal if it wouldn't have stopped the imperialist project in Ukraine? Well, the the problem for uh, well, Russia particularly is that they uh, had um, several different factions, as I've explained, inside the governing structure of the uh, Russian Federation. Um, this is a uh, um, problem uh, that has, of course, been there for a long time. It was a problem that was there under even under the Soviet Union. You had a comprador element <clears throat> emerge inside the Soviet structure, which remained there all the way through the uh, the Yeltsin period, especially, but remained there into the Putin period. <clears throat> And these um, characters, this this layer in Russia, were very influential up to quite recently. They've lost an awful lot of influence uh, since the special military operation began, which is why the uh, everybody from the communists to the Eurasianists and, and the people who follow Dugin's philosophy are all unified around the idea that the special military operation is a uh, pivot point for the development of the Russian Federation that the pro-Western element gets weakened. The reason why the the Russian government position was to go for a ceasefire was because at that time, that element that wanted to uh, not lose the uh, very profitable uh, European market uh, to keep Russia essentially as a raw material supplier to Europe, that element was still very strong inside Kremlin up to uh, last year. The perverse outcome of the machinations inside the uh, in, inside uh, the European Union and the NATO bloc is that this element that was their strongest ally inside the Russian Federation, this element has now been destroyed, or at least it's been severely weakened. It can't pop its head out anymore. And the um, the level of duplicity and the level of um, aggression that has been revealed towards the Russian Federation mean that this comprador element uh, now can't openly make its case inside the Russian Federation. And this report just confirms all the things that we, um, in the anti-imperialist camp, uh, all the things that actual Marxist-Leninists have said about this crisis since the beginning. And it's what makes, of course, the Greek Communist Party so wrong is that Russian imperialism is not a thing. It doesn't, it, 
it is not a factor because it's not something that is real. It's something that is cooked up inside the imaginations of false Marxists. Um, because if Russia was an actual imperialist power, then the um, policy that they would have pursued in early 2022 would have been the exact opposite of what they did. They would have gone all in and tried to swallow all of Ukraine. The actual objectives were incredibly limited. It was limited to essentially Putin having to respond to the pressure on him from the communists and the nationalists around Donbass and having to sort of get that out of Ukrainian influence and to resolve that particular contradiction. But the other thing, of course, to go back to what I was just saying about the purpose of um, the purpose of Ukraine and the purpose of uh, the Western project there, the likelihood is that the, um, the, the problem would have reemerged in Kharkov, uh, Zaporozhye, Kherson, they would have um, created a similar regime down there in the end to um, de-Russify de the area. And they would have created as many problems as they could have done down there, even if the um, Lugansk and Donetsk would have gone their own way. They would have found other ways to pursue this project um, one way or another, because the, the priorities of imperialism are too strong. One of the problems that the Russian government has, of course, is that by... Um, they had to, the leadership of it had to be basically hit over the head by imperialism over and over again before they realized that you can't bargain with U.S. imperialism. In U.S. imperialism, in its current declining state is only going to respond to displays of force. And there's no bargain that you can strike with it that is going to last more than 10 minutes. And this is also true of the Europeans. The Europeans, the, the Russians, um, the Russian government and the ruling circles there actually thought that they were dealing with an autonomous group in the form of the European ruling classes, particularly the Germans and the French. What they have learned is that because these two places have been weakened by relative economic decline over the last 30 years, uh, that they are completely incapable of operating any kind of strategic autonomy, that they are completely um, subservient to American imperialism, because as we've talked about with regard to the Sahel, the only way that French and indeed German imperialism keeps their influence over the African nations <clears throat> is not via their own military strength. It is via the um, AFRICOM and via the strength that the American imperialists are able to impose upon the various comprador elements that run a lot of the African nations. And that's why, of course, it is so significant that what's happened in the uh, in recent days with the success of the uh, the Malian um, counteroffensive, shall we say, in uh, northern Mali, taking back large areas from the jihadist organizations, the Salafist organizations that emerged there 10 years ago, actually longer than 10 years ago, 12 years ago after the fall of Libya, then you can see that the whole reason for the deployment of French forces there turned out to, of course, been to keep the, and American forces, to keep the Malian, Burkinabi, <clears throat> and Nigerian um, governments weak and unable to exercise control over their own territory. Because as soon as they got rid of them, as soon as they got rid of French and American military influence, or, 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 or weakened it significantly, they were able and started coordinating their efforts to uh, defeat the Salafist organizations themselves, with assistance, of course, from the Russian Federation to some degree, they were able to actually come to a point where they could start to defeat uh, these organizations. 
So, I mean, we'll come back to that tomorrow because we've been going about an hour and a half now. And I wanted to focus mainly on this report into uh, the events uh, in Ukraine. But this is um, when it comes to go to come back to HM's question. Um, the peace deal was a reflection of two things. It was a reflection of the fact that the um, the pro-European or should we say the the elements within the Russian system that were drawing a lot of profit from their trade in oil and gas with Europe, those elements were strong enough to insist or to water down the military and intelligence faction inside the Russian Federation. Um, their plans for a more maximalist approach were to, to knock out the Kiev regime were diluted by the pro-European um, element. And that is, of course, you might regard that correctly as uh, self-defeating, but ultimately, that was what the original compromise position of the Russian government was, which is why both the communists and the nationalists were getting so mad about the negotiations in March of 2022, because the Russian government was going for the minimum possible objectives, which was they were they were going to keep Crimea no matter what, and that Donetsk and Lugansk were going to be sort of pseudo-independent entities, albeit not recognized by anybody other than Russia and the DPRK in Syria. So the contradictions there are a reflection of the weaknesses inside the Russian system, uh, weaknesses which have now been essentially dis, um, overcome by the very instrangence and aggression of the imperialists themselves, forcing change inside the Russian Federation. You notice that the Russian Federation is now more and more um, trying to lean on the Soviet legacy. They weren't, even as, as relatively uh, late as like 2018-19, um, were, you were still getting comments from um, Zakharova and others, uh, damning Stalin. Uh, Zakharova said that Stalin deserved a, a lower place in hell than Hitler at one stage. And go back earlier, you still had Medvedev and Putin doing like performative um, expressions of remorse over like, the fraud of the um, of the Katyn massacre was actually a massacre carried out by the Nazis that was then blamed by uh, the first the Nazis themselves and then later by CIA and MI6 propagandists and Polish nationalist propagandists on the on the Soviet forces when in actual fact all the evidence points towards the Nazis and you've got Putin and Medvedev going and laying wreaths there and saying how it was a reflection of the horrors of communism. Now, with the change in political circumstances inside the Russian Federation itself, you have Putin, Medvedev, Zakharova, and everybody else saying that they now completely defend the legacy of the Soviet victories in the uh, Great Patriotic War. I mean, to a certain extent, they brought this back anyway, but they were still um, pumping uh, the anti-Stalin narrative. Now you have more statues of Stalin going up across the Russian Federation than at any time since the 1940s. Now, you might say, well, what does a statue mean? Well, the amount of statues that get pulled down in Ukraine should tell you what it means, which is that the, the view of the Soviet period inside the Russian Federation itself is becoming more and more favorable. It was never unfavorable in large areas of the working class. But in terms of the, um, the Soviet period, it's become more and more popular. And thus, the Putin government leaning into this is more and more saying that, well, drawing upon its legitimacy to legitimize themselves. And so the Russian government moves from a position where it was wildly anti-communist 20 years ago 
to a, a point now where they're having to make more and more compromises with the um, the program of the Communist Party of the Russian Federation. Putin and his government have stolen quite a number of um, uh, policies from the, the KPRF, which, of course, the KPRF point out all the time. They're not implementing them in the way that they would, but they're being forced to move more and more towards a state-planned economy. And that's a slow process that's been going on since 2014. And so we're going to see the Soviet period become more and more redeemed in the official line of the uh, Russian government which, of course, is all a byproduct of the special military operation and the instransigence of the imperialists, you end up with all of their allies in the Comprador anti-communist cliques inside the Russian Federation itself being marginalized and discarded because they're associated with not just the Yeltsin period, but also external aggressive imperialist actors who want to destroy the Russian Federation and are quite open in their intentions in doing so. Uh, right. D says, do you think the money printing trick is coming to an end? Well, it'll have to in the end. What happens when the U.S. government cannot buy, sell bonds anymore? Well, what happens when the U.S. government can't uh, raise money uh, for its adventures around the world anymore by selling uh, dollar bonds? Essentially, whether well, that will trigger um, a gigantic um, class war to be waged upon the uh, American worker. And this will be combined, of course, with attempts at aggressive imperialist acts, particularly in Central and Southern America and in the Caribbean. So let's headline with that. But it will also mean a full-on war against like, the American working class. So we could expect, for instance, there's the long-term plan that they want to privatize and ultimately destroy the social security system. We can think about something like that, perhaps. Um, though this, of course, would be tremendously difficult and would um, trigger responses from the American working class with the potential for the American ruling class to be defeated there. But what you can expect when they can't rate, when they can't lean into money printing anymore, then they will attempt to pass the cost on to, first of all, um, what they regard as their hemisphere, the American imperialists, which is the greater region of the Americas and Caribbean, and also a class war on the American working class, that we, the likes of which we have not seen for, well, I would say ever, in terms of its viciousness, because the American ruling class could be pretty vicious in the class wars they waged in the 20s and uh, 10s of the, uh, the last century, but that was still at a time when American capitalism still had some life to it. Now they're trying to urgently reestablish the profitability of the system and recover from a giant crisis um, that has damaged their standing all over the world. They will have no choice but to wage war on the American worker, which will, of course, then provoke a, a, a massive escalation in the class war inside the United States, which is, of course, something that communists must be aware of and be ready for, because suddenly all of the assumptions that even the upper layers of the American working class had about their, the benefits they might have once gained from the system will all be washed away, or, or they will all be under threat all at the same time, because the American ruling class will have no choice but either violent external aggression and, of course, massive internal repression, a massive internal class war. That is where we are going. Ian Foster says, greetings, uh, caught out by the early start. Well, it's I'm going to schedule it more properly from now on. Um, appears Israel is saying F off to the US. I would not say that. Um, 
what you're seeing in these apparent rows between the um, the Israelis and the U.S. are not really rows at all. They are mild disagreements about the way in which the Israeli campaign is to proceed. You will see um, that, of course, the American imperialists continue, and the British and the French, continue the non-stop uh, supply of ammunition to Israel. The Any row that takes place between the Israeli government and the American master is simply about presentation and tactics. The American imperialists would prefer that the Israelis go slower and uh, also allow more humanitarian aid in. They would prefer that, but they're not going to insist on it. And they would prefer that the PR war be handled better. It's a matter of optics that they're falling out about, not purpose. The American imperialists share the purpose of exterminating the Palestinian National Liberation Movement. They are com in complete alignment on that point with all of their vassals in Europe, and the Israelis are the chosen method of doing that. So the disagreements are about presentation. They're about the fact that Biden's team doesn't want these demonstrations in the United States growing. They don't want to be damaged politically by this, but they're going to be. They, If they actually, I, I will re-emphasize the point I have made before. If they actually wanted to stop this, they could. They could say to uh, the Israeli government, right, no more weapons, no more money, sign a peace deal. Of course, for all the interests American imperialism has of retaining their Israeli military outpost, they're not going to do that. And Netanyahu and the others in Tel Aviv know that, which is why they're toing and froing and arguing with the American imperialists, because they, Netanyahu in particular, understands the relationship with the United States better than any other Israeli politician. And this is the source of, well, one of the sources of his success as a politician is that he understands that relationship. And he understands that he can go an awful long way and that the U.S. imperialists are never going to cut him off. And uh, he can basically give the middle finger to American presidents, knowing that the maximum one's going to be around is eight years. And that the system, as it stands now, is stronger than any individual American politician, particularly one who comes to it via conventional means. So, again, like the, these rows are disagreements over tactics to a degree and optics and presentation. The American imperialists want the Israelis to crush the Palestinian National Liberation Movement, but they want to do it in a way that doesn't have a boomerang effect into the United States itself. That's something which isn't going to happen. It's already boomeranged back. It's already severely damaged the Democratic Party. It's already going to have an impact at the next election. <clears throat> so we can uh, see that their objectives there have failed. Uh, right. Um, Lord Charfield says, if this is going to be the new time, I'll have to watch the recording as I'm normally working at this time in Perfidious Albion. Yep, uh, due to various other things, I'm having to shift the time around, but uh, recordings both, um, recording audio, audio recording is available instantaneously on the Patreon site. Uh, Muzzle Paint says, DC Rally was smaller than November the 4th. They did not march and heavily orchestrated for media cameras. Yeah, I thought so. It revealed that the pro-Zionist forces are expending an enormous amount of resources, power to keep an organic presence, whereas number the fourth was emerged with little involvement from the ruling class. Yeah, 
that rally looked like sort of a classic bourgeois setup in that they mobilized via essentially paying a lot of people to be there. There was a lot of resources put into it. I think they're going to keep trying to, uh, they're going to try and keep this going because they need to present some kind of organic movement on the ground in the United States in order to sort of bolster their forces. But they're massively outnumbered by the numbers that the pro-Palestinian uh, side can put on the streets. And so this isn't exactly uh, something which is, uh, it's clear that it doesn't have a, a groundswell of organic support in the United States. There's not a lot of people going out there and rallying for Israel, other than those who are, of course, organized by ruling class elements. The large, even in areas of the United States where apparently um, reaction dominates, there's not a lot of organic movements for Israel. Maybe, and American comrades will know this better than I do, um, you'll get some of the more aggressive, like evangelical types mobilizing for this. But we'll see. I mean, it reveals that the the movement for Israel inside the United States is a ruling class movement with limited uh, appeal inside the a limited appeal inside the petty bourgeoisie. So this is a very interesting development that we should monitor. Uh, will Nord Stream ever come back online? Says HM. Um, not with the current German government in charge. Not with any government in charge inside Germany as it currently stands. Um, there's a fair chance, given the intimate involvement of Schultz and Baerbock and other leaders of the German government with the plan for the war on Russia, then there's a fair chance that Schultz knew what the imperialists were planning to do to the Nord Stream pipeline and that he was actually quite happy to see it blown up um, because there would have been pressure on him to reopen it from the German capitalist class. I mean, I still am of the opinion, despite the reporting of Hirsch, the, the British government had far more to do with the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipeline than the US were, uh, simply because the US likes to, if it can, operate behind proxies. So I certainly don't believe that some Ukrainian colonel was behind it. I think that the primary mover behind it was the British government, who, of course, via the Navy, have the capability of carrying out this kind of sabotage operation. The American imperialists would have been involved, I think, but they would have been involved at a step removed. If they could get the idiot British to do this via the idiotic prime minister at the time, Liz Truss, then they would get the British to, to carry it out. And I think that they were the British were the principal movers in blowing it up. And the, the blaming of it on Biden, um, of course, he bears primary responsibility as the American president, and this plot would have originated from sources inside both Washington and London. But the pinning it on Biden suits certain people within the American military and intelligence establishment who want to pin this whole disaster on him. And so if they get the chance to lever him out of the picture, they can then go back to the Russians, blame the whole thing on the British and say, well, I'm British and Biden and say, well, that was then. This is now. How about a deal? Because certain elements within the American state want to keep that option open to them. They're not public about it, but they do. And they some elements in the American imperialist organi state organization understand that at a certain point um, that they will have to uh, make an arrangement with the Russian government. They don't want to acknowledge that right now, but they know that they have to take the Russian Federation even more seriously now, just as they have to take the Chinese seriously. 
They don't have to take the Europeans and the British particularly seriously because these are just vassal states which have been um, completely brought into uh, almost direct American control over their systems. Uh, Massimiliano Urbani says, uh, greetings from uh, Melbourne, a comrade. Uh, good to have finally caught you live. Well, welcome to the new system. So um, the other thing I wanted to drop in was, of course, that the British Parliament voted heavily against the um, a, a Scottish National Party measure to uh, uh, come out in favour of a ceasefire um, in Gaza. Now, of course, this was largely symbolic. It wouldn't have changed the policy of the British government for a moment, but is helpful in terms of getting the um, people on the record who were in favour of the ongoing mass slaughter. But I also wanted to just drop in here, and we'll discuss this more tomorrow because we've been going for two hours now. Uh, the idea that the um, that ceasefire now um, is the uh, is the slogan to go with. I think then we need a proper discussion upon this because this is the uh, the sort of petty bourgeois pacifist approach. Um, I would point comrades to the interview done by the Orinoco Tribune with the uh, Palestinian Marxist uh, Khaled Barakat, who makes a strong argument that um, the slogan ceasefire now isn't actually something which is helpful to the Palestinians, because what does it effectively do? At most, it goes back to what the status quo ante, um, the status quo before um, October the 7th. How does that help anybody? It's an understandable response that people come out with when faced with the horrors that imperialism is inflicting upon the uh, the Palestinian population, both in, in Gaza, certainly, but also on the West Bank. But also, I would ask you to bear in mind two things. First of all, the words of uh, uh, Hassan Nasrallah in his recent speeches, where he has pointed out that they are involved in a long-term war of liberation, where the ultimate target is the removal of the influence of US imperialism, not just in Palestine, which is the fulcrum of this, but also in Lebanon, in Syria, and in Iraq. And that is the bigger war that we are looking at here. And I would also ask comrades to bear in mind that what the Israelis are doing, horrifying, horrifying though, it, though it is, and murderous though it undoubtedly is, is completely in line with how all of the imperialist states have behaved, going all the way back to, well, how long do you want to go back? But let's go back to post-1945. Um, and I did more research into the um, the French massacres in 1945 in Algeria. The French killed 45,000 Algerians in three days after um, a, demonstra a, a demonstration, of, a protest in favor of Algerian independence. And this was when the Second World War was still going on. The uh, the great and glorious anti-fascist alliance of which French imperialism was included committed a massacre in, in Algeria that wiped out dozens of villages that killed 45,000 people in three days. That's Einsatzgruppen level of work. That's um, Germany on the Eastern Front levels of massacre. That's the kind of thing that you, if you want to take this in, fiction and film terms that you would see in the um, the film from 1985, Come and See, the, the Soviet movie about the um, crimes of the Nazis in Belarus. That's a level of massacre that is truly horrific. And again, as Algerians have pointed out, the French killed a million people in Algeria before they were forced out. It's a 
horrific um, le level of criminality that they engaged in there. The British did very similar things in Kenya. So these wars of liberation that are waged, always waged by people who have a sometimes much lower uh, movements that have a much lower uh, technological level or a much uh, restricted access to methods of warfare, these insurgencies always come with a gigantic price, horrible price in terms of lives lost, in terms of blood shed, because the imperialists, their advantage lies in their ability to commit acts of mass slaughter. But ultimately, they are defeated. Ultimately, the French were defeated, and it led to the near collapse of the French bourgeois state. Ultimately, Israel will be defeated, and ultimately, the US imperialists will be defeated. But they will not be defeated without a vicious struggle and without being able to um, put um, a horrific price tag upon this liberation. So I would ask comrades to bear that in mind. We will consider this in more depth tomorrow when I come back and do another stream then. Uh, right, I'm going to bring things to a close for today. Hopefully the streaming software will be back tomorrow. So any glitches that you're seeing in the live stream will be ironed out by uh, by then. So thank you to everybody who's tuned in and contributed to the chat. The audio of this will be available instantaneously on Patreon. I'll be back online tomorrow at the same time. So until then, thank you for tuning in, and I'll be back with you again then. Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need workers' support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.